0: We're together reading through a New Testament book called Philippians. And some of you haven't been here. Some of you have been here for some of it. I probably should give you just a little update just to make sure you know the context. It's written by a guy named Paul, a church planter in the first century, written to a congregation of people, worshippers in a city called Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, which means it was kind of a mini-Rome. And people that lived in this city of Philippi, had the unusual distinct privilege of being citizens of Rome, which gave lots of privilege in the first century when the Roman Empire was expanding. So it's, there's a little bit of pride there, and they had some of the kind of building and architecture that you'd see in Rome. A lot of the people that lived there were um, soldiers, or better yet, officers. In the Roman army, some of them had actually been defeated by the present emperor, and he was so smart, he gave them land to make some loyalty come back in his direction in Philippi. So Paul goes there with a group of people, Luke, Timothy, Silas, and they they begin... Uh, They got there because the Holy Spirit told them to go specifically there. That wasn't on their agenda, but they went there. Kind of like this morning, everything we just did wasn't on our agenda, but we went there. (laughs) Um, So they went and, and began to tell some people outside of the city about Jesus. Soon they became believers. A church was planted. Paul and Silas got in trouble and got thrown in jail. They got beaten pretty severely. A lot of persecution for the name of Jesus. And they have now left Philippi and Paul is continuing being persecuted because he's in prison in Rome in chains when he writes this letter. Um, The Philippians know that he's in prison and they've sent one of their own, a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, not a name many people give their kids anymore. Epaphroditus came to Rome with a gift from the church to help take care of Paul, you know, feed him and just encourage him and bless him. And now um, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with the letter that we're reading to the church in Philippi, telling him how he's doing, thanking them for the gift, and encouraging them in some things about their life together, asking them especially to work on some fighting that's been going on in the congregation, to get rid of any selfish ambition that's in the group, but be united with one heart and one spirit before the Lord as they face opposition themselves in the gospel. See, that's kind of the context. We called this series... Um, courageous joy because there's a lot of courage needed in the face of the suffering and the persecution that this church is facing. And the, and the letter is full of calls to joy and reasons for joy and rejoicing. So we run into that uh, in, in numbers of different ways, and this is the eighth time that we're talking, and we'll go at least a few more times. We're in the third chapter right now. This chapter is um, just a treasure trove those people that have been reading the Bible for centuries millennia, this is one of, a fa- one of favorite passages, one of favorite parts that Christians have been encouraged by. If you've been a Christian for any time at all and heard some preaching or done some Bible reading, you've probably heard some of the things that I'm going to read today. And you go, oh, that's where that's from. So I want to read some of the treasure and see if we can unpack some of it to inspire and, and to instruct us. That's where we're going today. In the third chapter, let me just pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, thank you for seeing to it that we would have instruction and inspiration from the Holy Spirit. We've read in in your Bible that all of Scripture is inspired, is God-breathed, and is profitable for instruction, for rebuke, for exhortation, for uh, instruction in the ways of righteousness, that the people of God could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we pray today that we'll learn from you. That will learn from you. Bless us and encourage us and speak to us and speak to me and I pray that through me you'll do that amazing thing where everyone in the room hears from you in a way that they need to hear from you. Make the word in our hearing be alive like it always is. Alive. Like a two-edged sword cutting, dividing between soul and spirit. Bless us now. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, in, your, in your notes and probably on the screen behind me, it probably says the one thing or something like that. And that, that comes out of a verse in the section that we're going to read today. And I'll just read that verse first. It says this, Paul's writing. He says, one thing I do. One thing I do. So I'm going to focus on that phrase for a little bit. Forgetting what is behind. Here's a picture of someone in a race strain to the finish line, forgetting what is behind, or paying no attention, really. Paying no attention to what is behind and things that have gone on behind me, good and bad, my past. Paying no attention to that, I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, when you think of one thing in life, you get pretty focused And you get pretty effective, and I think Paul's doing that here. He's calling this church, himself, and even us, by way of example, to one thing. And and I'm going to give you the summary of what I think this one thing is for him right now, and then we'll read it together, and you hopefully will see why I I gathered this. But I'm going to say it first to kind of get our minds around it. It seems to be that if you boil down the life of courageous joy... That Paul calls us to in this letter to one thing it's this pressing on toward the goal pressing on toward the goal of really intimately experientially knowing Jesus that seems to be his focus everything that we've said everything that we've read in the past weeks might be able to be boiled down to this one thing if I'll get this one thing focus my life on, press my life into, press forward in, strain toward this goal, the prize of knowing Jesus completely, thoroughly, relationally, experientially. So here's the whole uh, section that we're going to read, and I'm I'm just going to Kind of read through it, maybe make a couple comments as I read and then come back and get some points together. This, and this is useful, by the way, if you're an old-fashioned person that actually has a paper version of the Bible. I don't know if you knew they still make these um, that you can write in and circle things. My Bible helps me that way. I circle things and then I come back and remember things that I said. So you could do that now. It's legal to write in the Bible. One, Here's, here's the scripture, starting back at verse 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's where I'm getting this idea that his goal is about knowing Jesus. Everything else is lost. For whose sake I have lost all things. And Paul did lose a bunch. I mean, he's writing in jail right now. He's in chains. But I consider them rubbish or street trash, just garbage out on the street. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, and Paul was a righteous guy. He was thoroughly entrenched in the Jew, Jewish way of life, the Mosaic law. He had it probably completely memorized as a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law, followed it completely. But he said, I want that, not, not that kind of righteousness, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. This is what I want to know. And just let me pause grammatically in this in what I just read. It's not like Paul is saying I want to know three things. It's like he's saying I want to know one thing. I want to know Jesus, and I want to know Jesus in two dimensions. I want to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection on the one hand, and I want to know Jesus in the fellowship of suffering for him, on the other hand, both at the same time, that's the way that I will know Jesus thoroughly. And that's good for us. I'll try to describe that a little more fully. But we often talk about the already and the not yet understanding the kingdom of God. That Jesus has come saying the kingdom of God is here. But he also said the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness, so pray that the kingdom would come. Or the kingdom of his God is like a man that went away on a long journey for a long time to be crowned king. And while he was away, he left some people in charge as stewards over his goods. Remember that story? Because the kingdom is now, but it's not fully consummated until Jesus returns. That's a whole other teaching, but it's worth knowing, noting. Paul seems to be referring to that concept already and not yet in this passage. So we, we experience suffering, and we also experience the power of the resurrection. Some of you today might have been healed physically. I, I would suspect that because of the way the Holy Spirit was leading our gathering. And some others of you might not be healed yet. And eventually all of us die. So we, we're not all going to be completely healed because we're all going to die. But then we're going to be resurrected when Jesus comes back and we really will be healed completely. So we live in the already and the not yet. Anyway, suffering, power of the resurrection. Um, sorry, Paul, for interrupting you. Let me get back to what you said. Becoming like him in his death, somehow to attain from, to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained all this. Now, he's getting back to his point. He interrupted himself. He's going to get back to his point about pressing on. I haven't obtained all this. I haven't already been perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took a hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward, To what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. So, I mean, there's a call to you and me. Here's how we ought to live. We also ought to have a one thing in mind. All of you who are mature, you're growing in Christ, and you want to be mature, perfected, a spiritual adult, you might say. This is how you ought to look at life pressing on with one heart and one mind to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took a hold of you. And if on some point you think differently, you listen, listen to the grace Paul has. You know, if you disagree with me, that's cool too. We'll talk about that, and God will make it clear to you. But only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. And here's kind of a sad note. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. That is to say, some people are not pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of them. Rather than pressing into knowing Jesus fully in in their experience and how they live, some, rather, are pressing into following their desires and their appetites, their stomachs, their gods, their stomach is what he said. And he says, with tears, some, instead of pursuing Jesus and the cross, are pursuing appetites and desires in this world. And it's lost for them. They're not pressing into one thing. Then he comes back and says, but, but listen, our citizenship is in heaven. Back to the focus of Jesus And our role, our identity, as sons and daughters of the king, living here temporarily, but not finding our existence and our longings and our desires fulfilled in this present age, but in the powers of the coming age and in his presence and in his kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a savior from there. I mean, You see what's happening. He's talking about, I'm living in suffering, I'm living in the power of the resurrection, all with a mind toward the full resurrection when Jesus comes. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He's talking about the resurrection of everyone who believes in Jesus. It's a really wonderful, full treasure of a passage here, full of meaning and... um, theology and and doctrine and and a way of living, pressing on, living sometimes in trouble, living sometimes in victory, always with hope for the ultimate victory that we are going to experience when Jesus returns. Therefore, my brothers, for whom I love and long, for my 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 joy and my crown, that's how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now you know. If you wondered how to stand firm in the Lord, this is how. One thing. Press into the one thing. Press in to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of you. And, and when I read that one thing, like probably many of you that read the Bible, your mind instantly went to other one things in the Bible. I'm, I'm guessing you did that. My first thought was Mary and Martha. Do you remember Mary and Martha? And what did Jesus say? One thing's important. So just, just by way of reference, if you don't know this story, I put it in your notes. This is in Jesus' life, in Luke 10. Um, Jesus was on his way, walking with his disciples, going from town to town ministry, and they came to a village where he had some really good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Has anyone heard of Lazarus? The guy that apparently was only mostly dead. No, he really died, and, and then Jesus brought him back from the dead like four days later. Great story. But this is that family. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, they came to that village. Um, Martha was there. She opened her home. She had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was very busy and very distracted by all her preparation. She had to make the sandwiches. And she was cleaning the house. And she was busy, 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 busy working. Anyone relate to Martha? Thank God for the Marthas, by the way. But, She was distracted and she came to Jesus and you know you're in trouble whenever you come to Jesus to correct him. Something's not right right there. She had a little bit of a control issue apparently when you're telling God how to run the show. (laughs) You better not do that. She goes, Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me, (laughs) which is just so funny. And Jesus in his gracious, wonderful way says, Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things. And here's one thing. Only one thing's needed. Mary's chosen what is better. It's not going to be taken from her. No, I'm not going to tell her to stop and help you. I'm not going to take it away from her. She's chosen the better part. What's she doing? She's pressing in to know Jesus. She's pressing in to take hold of that for which Jesus took a hold of her. And... um, Just another one I thought of immediately was um, David, King David, man after God's own heart, and the psalm in Psalm 27, where he said, There's only one thing I desire, one thing I desire that I'm going to seek after, that I may dwell in the temple or the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to stay there and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to worship him. One thing, I want to seek his face. What's your one thing? Do you want to stand firm in the Lord? Do you want to be someone who's strong in the Lord, who's not blown away by all the difficulties and storms and trials of life? Here is a key, here's a key principle. Here's a treasure for you. Treasure Jesus. When it all boils down to one simple thing, Make knowing Him the pursuit of your life. And everything else will probably work out all right. But if we don't have that, if we're not pursuing the knowledge, the experiential knowing of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who we worship, our Savior, our Healer, our Deliverer, our Redeemer, The everlasting Father, the Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the one who died for our sins, the one who rose from the dead for our justification, the one who's coming again, who will be King of kings and Lord of lords over the entire world. If he's not in my target, if he's not my bullseye, if he's not what I'm spending my energy on, the one thing I'm pressing into... I'm straining toward the finish line of taking hold of that for which he took a hold of me. To know him, I might miss out. That's what I want to say. (laughs) Moses, Moses, man, he loved loved the presence of God. And in um, Exodus 33 is the story of him going to the tent of meeting um, and it's, I should have said Moses and Joshua. Joshua doesn't get a lot of airplay in this text, but uh, what I love in the story, maybe we'll read it, is that whenever Moses would go to the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord, Joshua would go with him, and Joshua would never leave. He'd just hang out there like David. But in that place, in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know them whom you'll send with me when you want me to lead them into the promised land. you said, I know you by name, and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, oh God, teach me your ways so that I may know you. One thing, that I may know you. I want to know you. I want to know you more. The Lord said, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. And Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't even send us. I don't want to go without you. I hope that's your prayer. I don't want to do anything without the presence of the Lord. How will anyone know you're pleased with me, your people, unless you go with us? What else would distinguish us from any other people of the world, any other group, other than the presence of the living God in our lives, upon our lives, leading, guiding, providing for us? We need your presence. Lord, don't send me without your presence, is Moses' cry. The one thing that he's pressing in, and the Lord said to him, "I'll do the very thing you've asked, you will know me, because I know you. I know you by name and I'm pleased with you." And then Moses said, "Well, let me go some farther. Show me your glory." Remember that one? And the Lord's glory in, passes by him. Um, I want to I mentioned it earlier when we were reading. I want to just focus just a little bit on this, this concept of the, the two sides, the knowing Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings and knowing him in the power of his resurrection. So in the 10th verse, Paul wrote this, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. Um, Guess what has to happen before you experience resurrection. Uh, Did you hear that? You have to die. Yeah, you don't get resurrection life until you die. That's the good news, bad news kind of thing. But it's actually good news. So that's why Paul was in in tears over those that didn't want to die. They didn't want to die to this life. They didn't want to die to themselves. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, this is Matthew 16 is recorded. If anyone would come after me, if you want to come after me, remember he's saying, everyone follow me. He says to his disciples, who already said, I want to follow you. He says, okay, if you want to follow me, you can't unless you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and then life will come. Because whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. One of those upside down kingdom things. If you want life, lose it. Uh, Apparently, everything that you want in the kingdom of God, you get by giving it away. Did you know that? You give it away, and then you get it. You want life? Give your life away. Then you get life. You want joy? Give your joy away to somebody. You'll get some joy. You need some money? Give it away. And see what doesn't come back to you. That one got quiet. <laughs> that's the truth. If you don't sow, you don't reap. Has any, Just test it. Has anyone tried even the simplicity of giving 10% of the money that God gives you to the Lord and discovered that you live better on 90% that's blessed than 100% that's not blessed? Have you ever? And the math just doesn't work out, right? I gave away and I have more than I started with because before I gave, I didn't have enough, and now that I give, I have more than enough. Give it away. You want to live? Die. So, but more fully in, in describing that, Paul says this in his letter to the Romans. Romans 6, I'd love to read the whole, in fact, I'd love to read the full eight chapters, the first eight chapters of Romans. It's such good stuff. You can wade up and back through Romans 1 through 8 for your life in the riches and the treasures of those, those passages, the wisdom, of the grace of God. But he talks about death and life. Here in Romans 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism. Why? In order that. In order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a resurrection life. Surely, this is what Paul had in mind when he was writing to the church at Philippi, saying, I want to know the power of the resurrected life. Having identified with Jesus in baptism, dying to my old life, I was born again. I was raised to new life, resurrection life. Um, Anyone ever read Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, just this great devotional? Here's something he said about that in his devotional. What resurrection means for us is that we are raised to his risen life, not to our old life. We can know here and now the power and effectiveness of his resurrection and walk in newness of life. So the experience that you have when things are going terrible in your life and it doesn't seem to affect you, that's resurrection life in your life now. When what used to steal your joy no longer can steal your joy because you have died to your old life and have identified with Jesus and have been raised to newness of life and now your joy cannot be stolen because you're living a resurrected, powerful life. And the things that used to knock you down and knock down your neighbor don't seem to knock you down anymore because you're living the resurrected life. And you continue to have peace when there's a storm and contentment when there's nothing to be content about because you're living the resurrected life. People, if, if it's working like this people might even ask you what is wrong with you why are you so happy and you'll say it's Jesus i've been i've been doing one thing i've been pressing into knowing him and in knowing him i've discovered that the life that he went ahead and got for me by rising from the dead i'm living in now i'm tasting it already so the the suffering side This I put in your notes suffering with Christ has the unexpected blessing of deepening our intimacy with Him. Paul found that intimacy so valuable that loss, he said, was no longer loss, but he counted it gain. It was so worth suffering for the name of Jesus that he said, It's not loss at all. In fact, I rejoice. And when we've been reading in Philippians, over and over, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in your difficulties. He said, you know what? I'm in prison. I'm in shackles. But I'm rejoicing because of this situation. Everyone in Rome has been more bold to preach about Jesus. More people are getting to know him. And because of that, I rejoice. That's resurrection life, people. You can't get this guy down. Lock him up and he gets happier. Lock him up so he won't preach and there's more preaching going on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He rejoiced. Resurrection life. Wow. In the midst of suffering. Peter, you all know Peter, he wrote this in his letter. "Don't, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though that were some strange thing. When, when you're suffering a painful trial, don't go, where did that come from? I can't imagine. I thought I was a Christian and Jesus would take care of me and all my problems would go away and there'd be no more suffering. And Peter says, what? he says, basically, what the heck? What are you thinking? Something strange? No. In fact, what's his next word? What is it? What is it? There's three people. Rejoice. When you're suffering, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. He's saying the same thing Paul's saying. The fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice now, and you're really going to be rejoicing then when Jesus returns. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, watch this. That's a blessing. In fact, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, the Spirit of glory, and of God rests on you. So be careful when you pray, come Holy Spirit. (laughs) you see that? Lord, let your glory rest on me. Okay, glad you did that. You might get some suffering with, with the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. You might get that. In answer to the prayer, let the spirit of glory rest on me. Are you okay with that, people? I know that's not a very American prosperity message. But it's real prosperity. It's real prosperity. Prosperity of soul. That doesn't matter how prosperous the checking account is. I like it when the checking account's overflowing too. Don't get me wrong. That's good times. But when it's not, Paul said, I know how to be content whether I'm abased or abounding. And that's what I think Paul is saying in all this. Just to say a little more fully, life in the kingdom, and I mentioned this, is already, and not yet, this so helps us to live full of faith, but able to handle difficulties. If we have a theology that just says we only should have the triumph of the coming kingdom now and we should never have any trials or troubles or sickness or difficulty, you might get really frustrated. You'll get really confused if you believe that if you just had enough faith, nothing would go wrong. Then you'll get condemned. But the fact is Jesus said right here and now you will have some trouble, but don't be worried about it. I'll be with you. And he also said, right here and now, you're going to have a lot of great stuff too. You're going to see healing. You're going to see the dead raised. You're going to see needs supernaturally met. The poor will be fed and clothed. The hungry will be taken care of here and now in the kingdom of God. But... There'll be some trials, too. And then you understand that we live in this tension of the already. Jesus has come and the kingdom has come and he's already resurrected from the dead and he's already given the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says we are those who have tasted of the powers of the coming age. We've already tasted of it, but yet there is some suffering that's going on. The the already and the not yet. That's so good to know that in the midst of suffering, we do taste of the power of the resurrection, but we also are empowered Waiting and looking to the final resurrection in the midst of difficulty now. Did that make sense to you? Was that a no? That's a yes. Okay, there's some, there's some nodding. Thank you, Steve. Um, if we had time, we'd read more. Some other places in Paul where he talks about this as reigning in life. Reigning in life. In Romans 5, he uses that language. And again in Romans 6, the resurrection life reigning in life. So again, what we read, and I'll say it again from Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will, in the future resurrection, transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious resurrected body. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise someday and experience it now. Therefore, my brothers, You whom I love, my joy and my crown. This is how you should live. One thing. One thing I do. I press on to know, to apprehend that for which God, Jesus Christ, has apprehended me. If you didn't catch this, If you are a follower of Jesus right now, that happened because Jesus took a hold of you. And your job, according to what we've just read, is to pursue him to find out what it is he took a hold of you for. One of the main things is that you might know him. Well, I put it at the end of your notes, and I'll just mention now Jesus said, This is eternal life. This is the life of the ages. This is the life of the age to come. This is eternal life that they might know Jesus, whom the Father has sent, and know the Father. Eternal life is knowing the Lord, fully knowing Him. God bless you. How do you press on to know Jesus? Are you thinking? How do you press on to know Jesus? Somebody, say something to me. Who you read the word, that's a good idea. What else? Meditation. You know, someone said back there, you spend time with him. Ken? I think someone else said it too. So That's, that's two witnesses, that's good. Wait a second. The thing that you treasure, you spend your time, your money, your energy, your talent, you prioritize that which you treasure. Some folks treasure their vehicles. And that's okay, they spend some money on their vehicles. Who's snorting? He's laughing at the way his wife takes care of her car. Okay. (laughs) I think you get my point. Lord, I want to know you. So I rise up early and waste my time that some people would say. I waste it on him. Remember the lady that took her really expensive ointment, poured it on his feet and the people that saw it said, Why this waste? What a waste of your resource on Jesus. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's no waste at all. Pour out your resource on Jesus because eternal life is knowing Jesus. So I got one kind of final point to wrap this all together for me. Knowing Jesus and making him known. The natural outflow, if I know Jesus, is to make him known. That's the story of the whole New Testament, right? People that knew him immediately went to make him known. We behold the glory of God. We tell others about him. We worship and encounter the presence of God, and we're so overjoyed that we can't help but share it with others because there's that prophetic vision that I talk about quite frequently um, in in Habakkuk, and it's a vision even for our whole church and our thinking, for people everywhere to know and worship God. God, in all his goodness and glory. Because Habakkuk, I love that name, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, again, another name that people no longer name their kids, said, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, knowing and making known. The knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Finally, the thing that I said earlier, now we'll just read it together. This is the meaning of eternal life. Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people, that he may give eternal life to those you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Jesus is praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent.